my, my name is Matt Kearney, and uh, I'm an evangelist. And I have a ministry called Transform Nation. And I've had the, the honor of being able to travel throughout the world uh, sharing the gospel and partnering with local churches and, and training them in evangelism and then sharing Jesus together in the community. And so over the past 10 years, I, I've been able to see thousands of people come to know Jesus, you know, in South America, the Caribbean, throughout North America and Asia and even Israel. And God is doing a work around the world. Uh, today we're going to be talking about God's character, who He is. And it's it just going to be an amazing thing to see Him at work in His church around the world. And His mission is to see people know Him and to be saved from their sins. We also have a, a, a new outreach initiative called Street Chaplains. And uh, this is kind of our Chicago-based ministry, if you will, of bringing Jesus to the streets, meeting people right where they're at. And so, just a quick short story. This happened two and a half weeks ago. We were doing an outreach in front of the county courthouse in Waukegan. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll set up a table. We'll give away free Bibles, different community resources, like, you know, there's a Christian pregnancy center nearby. There's Love, Inc. There's uh, United Way's 2-in-1 system. If people need help with utilities or rent, that sort of thing, they can get that help. But it also has different spiritual topics that we have on the table, different brochures. Maybe it's like apologetics or um, where can I find hope in the midst of depression and anxiety, you know, some things like that. And so there was a young man who came, and we got to hear his story. And it's, it's not uncommon for us to hear that there are people that are needing a new place to live. Or they may be homeless or on the verge of homelessness. But as we listened to his story, I realized his life was in danger. He, he uh, was with a girlfriend who had an ex-husband who was coming back into the picture, and they were working together to kill him. And so we <laughs> were working together and realized he needs, he needs emergency shelter today. And so we worked with an organization called A Safe Place in finding him a hotel to stay in and to get out of that living situation. Never went back to that. He to find him that and was hearing about who Jesus was, believe God exists, knows that Jesus is a savior, but never committed to following Jesus, right? Because he's not just the savior, right? He's the Lord of all. And if we contemporize that word a little bit, it means he's the boss. It's literally translated master. But for, for our understanding today, like imagine that we're saying that Jesus is the boss of our life. And a disciple means to what? To be a follower of Jesus. And so he had never done that. And I remember telling him, would you like to do that today? And he said, yeah, I would. And so he gave his life to Jesus. So that's kind of the beauty of our street ministries. Like, literally, we saw this man's life saved that day but his eternal life was saved as well. And that's, that's the heart of us doing street ministry, is to see more stories like that happen. And God is working in Chicago. There may be a lot of violence, but he's still at work in rescuing the lost and the broken and the sinner. Amen? So I also have a, uh, my, my wife, Siobhan, she's with me here today. Can you wave at everyone? Say hello. She's an introvert, so she hates me for having her point pointed out. But I also got a son. His name's Ezra. He's a toddler. He'll be turning three in October. And if there's been one blessing from this pandemic, it's been 
that we've been able to spend a lot of time with our son and watch him grow up. And every day our home is filled with his roaring laughter and sometimes his cries. But his, this high-energy toddler, he always just keeps us on our toes. And it's made our work-from-home culture pretty challenging, though. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm grateful that our country continues to open up, and I'm seeing more evangelism opportunities open up in the community and around the world. But being a father has taught me so much about who God is as a father. And today, I want us to look at and I want us to celebrate and learn from the loving example of God the Father. But unfortunately, our country and the church in America are very conflicted on who God is. In fact, I believe this is the biggest challenge to evangelism and discipleship today. It's really a pandemic of theology. Is he a God of love or is he a God of hate? It's like we have this fractured view of the Father. And even the church, many of us look at the Bible and think, there's the God of the Old Testament who is only full of wrath and judgment and rules, and then Jesus came in the New Testament, right? As a God of love, forgiveness, grace, and perhaps acceptance. Most of us have a tough time understanding the Old Testament because we see God mostly as a God of love. But what does love even mean? The problem is we build our faith on an American definition of love oftentimes not God's definition of love. And many of us have this fractured view of God, as if God has two split personalities, one of love and the other of hate and or justice. And if we don't understand God's character, then we don't understand the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, our culture's view of love is, is truth is relative, and so the loving, you may be good for you, but that's not good for me. Or you be you, or you do you, right? We've all heard this, right? This has been what postmodernist 21st century America is all about. There is no absolute moral truth, just what works best for you. And that's what American love is all about. Just love and accept people no matter who they are and what they do. Just you do you. Of course, there has been a lot of good that has come out of this, like for example, everyone's health is different. So dieting, exercise, sleep is going to look different for each person because we're all made different. And it's good withhold judgment in that regard. Another example may be alcohol. There are, there are a lot of churches, a lot of denominations where like, that's a big deal. And, and for some, it may be that they have this personal conviction from God where it truly is sinful for them. But for others, moderation is okay. The problem is pretty much everything is just a matter of opinion these days, right? It has, it has become the dominant philosophy of our day since the sexual revolution of the 1960s. This freedom from restrictions on sexual activity that was a reaction to Christian culture of do's and don'ts. Now, if it doesn't really hurt anyone, then what's the problem? Pleasure triumphs right and wrong. Religious pluralism has been another byproduct of this love and relativism mentality. The coexist movement, for example, that all religions are all leading to the same path. They all lead to the same God. You may have heard the illustration of all the blind men and the elephant. This idea that they're all going after the same elephant, but they got different parts of the elephant. But it's the same thing. 
But in 2010s, we actually had one absolute moral truth that arose. Tolerance. Love equals tolerance and acceptance. And if you're intolerant, then you're hateful. People directly question God's character. Why would a loving God send people to hell? He's intolerant. Doesn't Jesus say not to judge people? And we define God in the American image of love. Social justice has become extremely popular, especially among my generation and younger generations. And it's driven by this definition of love. Anyone who is, in, who is not tolerant is hateful and must be dealt with. They imagine a world where everyone accepts and loves one another. Human trafficking is perpetuated by people who hate, and thus they must be dealt with. Christians are hateful, judgmental bigots, and against people of different sexual orientation. Therefore, they must be confronted and converted or brought to justice. Even a growing philosophy of government and parenting that says we shouldn't punish or discipline, but just positively encourage people and support them to live in ways they're loving and accepting. And I'd say that's probably not working too well as a solution by itself. But this, this philosophy in our culture of, of love, tolerance, acceptance is really an overreaction to our, the old culture's view of God, of holiness and justice. Right? The, the sexual revolution was a reaction to the law of the church that encouraged abstinence before marriage and promoted modesty. Had this Christian really emphasized in many of do's and don'ts rather than a loving relationship with Jesus and loving him by living for him. And people also got burned for making mistakes and sinning habitually and were judged harshly instead of lovingly encouraged to turn away from sin. Now on top of that, the hypocrisy of the church was unveiled more and more. Priests and pastors who abused children and committed adultery with others. And most churches were silent or even cited against Martin Luther King and the fight for equality for blacks in America. And many churches and families added to the laws in the Bible in a similar way that the Pharisees did in the time of Jesus. For example, rock music. It's of the devil, right? Some of you remember this. No dancing, no guitars. We just crossed the boundary, I think, you know, with worship this morning. And there was this, this has been going on for centuries, the resistance of scientific development has gone on for centuries. And now the pendulum has swung too far. The reaction has swung so far that even the church believes the culture's view of love and God, and that is a huge problem. Most don't understand the Bible that there is either a different God for each of the New Testament and the Old Testament, or they somehow believe God's character changed. If we don't understand that God is a God of both love and justice, then much of the Bible doesn't make sense. Stories like Noah and the flood, the plagues and the exodus from Egypt, the conquest of Canaan, Israel being disciplined during the time of kings, why Jesus died, why there's a hell. And today, people believe their version of God is better than the God of the Bible. Or they abandon God altogether, believing their love and system morality is better. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? As it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. People love to believe that Jesus never got angry, judgmental, 
or even hateful. But the Bible tells us differently. In Matthew chapter 25, it says that, that he will separate people into saved and condemned in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he clearly explains that there is a hell. Mark 13, he speaks of the end, the day of the Lord when he will rescue his elect people from the earth before his wrath and judgment comes. John 3.16 clearly explains that there is eternal life and death that is dependent on belief in Jesus, trusting in him or not. The idea that, that the character of God is different between the Old Testament and New Testament, really when you dig into God's word, it falls apart. God's covenant and how he brings love and justice to the world is what changes. And so we read Exodus 34 and a little bit of 33. And, and, and what does God say who he is? Because th this is God's word speaking, not anyone else's. And Moses, he asked to see the glory of God, the very presence of God. And God granted his request and passed by him. And, and, and as he passes by, he declares his name, which no one truly knows how to pronounce, by the way. Hebrew spell it out. Scholars today believe it's pronounced. And Yahweh is the more universally accepted by most scholars. So he says his name, but the thing about names in Hebrew culture is it's, it's tied to characteristics. A, a name encapsulated who you are. And so he says his name and what his name means. The identity of God. This is a very big deal in biblical history, in really the whole history of the world, what happens here. So verse, verse 6 in chapter 34. Yahweh, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and their children and on their grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That church is God. That's our God, the Father, amen? The declaration of God's character in this way can be found nine times in the Old Testament quoted in this way. But similar descriptions are found much more than that. Moses comes down and says in Exodus 32, hang on a second here, okay, in, in the Old Testament alone, the declaration that his loving kindness endures forever can be found 190 times, 190 times his loving kindness endures forever. Not, not the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Can you believe that? That it declares the love of God. So God loves us and is very patient with us. He desires that we be forgiven, but eventually he will get angry and deal with us if we don't respond in love and repentance back to him. So what's his first response, as we see here? His first response to us as humans, love. You catch that? That's the first response that God has and it's a part of his character. He does not jump to anger and wrath first, but he's compassionate and gracious first, abounding in loving kindness first. His heart is to forgive first. If we will get in right relationship with him, 
It's not judgment. It's not wrath first. So let's quickly look at some Bible stories with this scripture of God's character as our reading glasses. And the flood is really a big defining moment in our understanding of God. In Genesis 6, starting verse 5, it says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was, so, was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, with this story, many of us <laughs> like to focus on all the pretty animals that got under the boat, or some of us are just absolutely shocked about the, the number of people, the, the whole planet really died in this flood by the wrath of God. But we miss the heart of God here in this passage. Number one, he saw humanity and looked at their hearts. You, remember, you may remember the prophet Samuel when he's looking for the next king of Israel. He goes to Jesse's family. And Samuel's looking at all these you know, big, handsome brothers of, of David. And he's like, surely it must be this one. God's saying, no. How about this one? No. And he tells Samuel what? He says, man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is a huge operating principle of who God is, that he sees the intent, he sees the heart of every single person. It's a very important uh, operating principle for, for who God is and, and how he behaves towards creation. So he sees, he looks at their heart, and he was and is continuing to search to see if people will ever feel sorrow for their sins and turn to him for forgiveness and repent. Every intent of the thoughts was only evil continually, and it grieves him. His first reaction is to love, and then he grieves before it turns to anger. And thankfully, we get to verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. If it wasn't for him and his family, we wouldn't be here today. He built an ark and all his family and two of all the animals of the world at that time bored before the wrath of God comes. And this story of the ark is a continual theme throughout biblical history. God searches the world for people that will turn to him. And he tries to give people the opportunity to know him if they're able. And then he shelters them from evil and his judgment that deals with evil. Let's look at the plagues of Egypt in Exodus. God claims Israel as his people and defends them. Put the blood of the lamb on your doors and death won't come, Moses said. And the blood of the lamb was the ark of God that saved their lives. Pass through the waters to the other side, and I will protect you and destroy the Egyptians that are trying to kill you. God's salvation is the ark that saves them from the evil and the wrath of God. How about the story leading into Exodus 34? Moses has two tablets with the Ten Commandments. But what did Israel do? They made a golden calf, an idol, in chapter 32. And so Moses comes down. And says at verse 26, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And he calls people to the Lord, to that ark of salvation, if you will. And God gave them favor, and they killed many who rebelled against God that day. But the people were sorrowful 
and he makes atonement for the forgiveness of their sins. And he tries to bring them into the ark of God, salvation, <laughs> being identified as the people of God. And at first, as you look at this passage, God is initially reluctant to accept them as his people. He's un initially unwilling to take them in. But Moses begs God on their behalf, basically calling out God as the father of Israel. And God says yes and accepts them. And that's when Moses asks to see his glory. Then we come to the promised land, the conquest of Canaan. And for many in the church and outside the church, this is probably the, the hardest to understand. Because he basically had the Israelites commit genocide throughout the land, right? But why? Again, just like the story of the, of the flood, God looks at the people of the land. He sees that if they allow them to survive, they would try to seduce his own people to sin, which grieves God, right? Deuteronomy chapter 9 says this in verse 4. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It grieves God because people hurt themselves when they sin. And they choose to rebel against the very character of God. And they turn away from relationship with him. And as we know, they actually don't end up wiping out all the people. And sure enough, they are tempted by those same people, and they turn away from God. Also note that this command to conquer the land in this way was not given ever again, really, in Scripture, to wipe out all people. In fact, we get to the, to the New Covenant with Jesus, and it says, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be before the throne of God. That's, that's where we're at right now, is that they were supposed to be, a, once established, that they would be a blessing to the nations, leading people to him, to, to be restored to relationship with God. People look at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart, and sin takes over the human heart. This is why Jesus died, and this is why there is a hell. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3, 16, he loves the world. People are quick to know also. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's become very popular in our culture, for God is love. But what does the next verse say? Verse 9, by this the love of God manifested in us that God has sent his only son of the world so that we might live through him. In other words, he died for our sins so that we would be made right with him because that's the price of our sin. It has to be dealt with. He had to die so that our sin would die with him and we would then live as God's people. His desire right now is to open up the ark of salvation, the cross. Like Moses, we beg everyone to receive the blood of the lamb on the doors of their hearts and be saved and to enjoy God now and forever. But there is a hell because sin is evil and it's virus-like in how it spreads and brings destruction. And he was so afraid of what it would do to Israel during the time of Joshua, he wanted them to eradicate it. And God is going to eradicate sin one day because he is a God of love. Like, wait a minute, how can 
essentially God just not just eradicates sin, but the people that identify with sin if he's a God of love. And that's where the Father comes in. He wants to protect us, and sin grieves him and angers him. He wants to protect us from sin. And so one day sin has to be dealt with in this way, just like in the time of Noah, just like in the time of Exodus, just like in the time of Canaan, there will be a day where once and for all, evil is dealt with. And it's, it's not just for him, it's for us, so that we won't have to deal with COVID-19 ever again, cancer ever again, domestic violence ever again, gang violence ever again, lying ever again. How, how many of you have been hurt by lying? And, and these little sins lead to bigger sins. They get bigger and badder. Sin, sinners will always seek to rebel against God because they don't want him to be Lord of their lives. They want to be the Lord of their own lives, the boss of their own lives. And this is the heart of Satan, to be the Lord of our own destiny. And they fight against the character and the authority of God. And some people may want to say, well, I'm a good person compared to most people. I try to do what is good, but even people who strive to do good without living for God are sinners because they choose to do life their own way instead of God's way. Sometimes when I share the gospel, I like to quote the old Burger King slogan, have it your way, you know, and I suppose there's nothing really wrong with that, that slogan, but I, I think that's exactly what Satan wants for us, have it your way. You know, we get, we get to Genesis 3, Satan told Adam and Eve that they wouldn't die, but that they would be like God, knowing both good and evil. That they would be like God, that they would be like the Lord, that they could be the boss of their own lives. And they could, they could know better than God. And that was Satan's desire, and he wants that to be for us. He didn't want to worship his own gods. And the being our own God or making gods of our own. And he wants us to make a final decision, to go against God, to have it our way. And so that's what it's about when it comes down to it. Are you going to have life your own way, or are you going to have life God's way? See, the beauty of Jesus is you don't have to come and be perfect to know him. I like to share with people like on, on the street, God is a personal God. We are made in the image of God which means relationships are, are a, a microcosm of, of what it's like to be in relationship with God. And so when you sin against someone else, you call them a name, maybe you hit them, what has to happen? Number one, there has to be an apology, right? There has to be forgiveness. And then there has to be restitution. You know, if you hit someone's car, what do you have to do? You got to pay for the damages, Maybe you hit someone so hard you break their jaw. What do you got to do? You probably got to pay for their medical bills. The beauty of Jesus is he's saying we've, we've offended him. We've, we've hurt him. We've, we've hurt his heart. He's saying, come, I've, I've paid the price. I've paid that restitution. I died on the cross for you. And all you have to come is say, I, I, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me to put your trust all, all, all that you are, all that you have, your life and your death, to put it in his hands and say, I'm done. 
I'm done living life my way. I'm going to follow you. And this life of following Jesus, it, it is a journey. You don't, you, you, it's not about being perfect in order to come to Jesus. No, he was perfect for us. But we turn away from the life that we're living and say, I, I'm going to live for you. I don't know what that looks like. Some people, when they come to Jesus, they know God has brought to mind some things that they need to change. That's not what saves them. It's, it's Jesus, his forgiveness, his restitution on the cross that enables us to be saved. But we turn to Jesus and say, I want life your way instead of mine. And so we live in this world where he says, okay, you want to be like God? Here you go. Your own world. And God gave us the consequences of living in a world where we are the boss. Death, decay, and destruction. He allows us to exercise our own free will, and we suffer the consequences. Natural disasters, sicknesses like COVID-19 and cancer, racism and war are here because of us in our decision to be our own gods. It's not because of him. If we experience the full reality of his authority, of him being the Lord and the world deciding, we want you to be our God, we want you to be in charge, guess what would happen? All that would go away, and we would experience total closeness with him forever. The relationship restored, that's heaven. It's <laughs> all that evil, all that suffering is gone. And the problem is, is most of this world won't choose that. And, and that, that, that breaks my heart. That grieves me. And I dedicate my life to begging the world to turn to Jesus. Because it's better to have life his way than our way. Look where it's gotten us. In this America we are in is Satan's attempt to create a world without God. Today he's endeavoring to make it look more good than the kingdom of God. And we must take our stand today. We cannot let him win. He's promising this utopia right now in America through many people. But in the end, all he wants to do is to steal, kill, and destroy, as Jesus says in John 10.10. And so for the sake of thousands of people who are leaving the church because they believe this lie, and the many souls who are lost who see this lie as a deterrent from believing in Jesus— we must better understand who God is and proclaim his heart, his character clearly to the world. A few years ago, I was in, um, I was in Bethlehem in Israel. Um, it was back in the spring of 2018, and I was there to share the gospel with Muslims there. Um, it's a Palestinian part of the country. And then Siobhan called me. And... She told me for the first time she was pregnant and that I was going to be a father. That's how I found out. I was on the phone in Bethlehem in Israel. And I had these mixed emotions that flooded me. Amazement, joy, but then anxiety. Do, do we really have enough income for this? What about our freedom to do the activities that we want to do? Will I be a good dad? How do I do this? I, but when Ezra was born, everything changed. And God filled me with such love for him, I knew it could overcome everything. And 
as he's about to be born, they encouraged us, hey, you want to play some music? That's, you know, helpful. And so I just, I, I hit shuffle, and the first song that came on was Your Love Never Fails. And it's this eight-minute song. And what's amazing about that song is by the, our son was born by the time b- before it was over. It was just really quick. It just was kind of miraculous like that. But I think the words to that song are so significant today. You stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. There may be pain through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And when the oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid because I know that you love me. Your love never fails. God loves you. He loves you now. He loved you on that cross. He loved you as Israel battled for Canaan. He loved you when he delivered his people from Egypt. He loved you when he fled the world and saved Noah and his family, ensuring that one day you would hear the good news and you would know his love and salvation. I desperately want my son, Ezra, to know God. Siobhan and I, we're going to raise him up the best we know how. And I want to be a father like God the Father. I want to let him know how much I love him. I will defend him from those who try to harm him because I love him. I will, I will, I just, I will love him with all my heart. But because I love him, I'm also going to give him boundaries because I, want, I don't want him to sin. Because sin will hurt him and it will grieve me just like it grieves God. And I will teach him God's ways and why following him is best. I will teach him if he rebels against me and my wife and the Lord God, I will discipline him. But one day he will grow up and he will decide if he will follow Jesus. Whether or not he will put the blood of the lamb on the door of his heart. And I pray and hope he chooses Christ. But if he doesn't, I pray that God will discipline him with the consequences of sin in this life, much like the prodigal son, that he would see the error of his way in return. I hope it never comes to that. But I will love my son no matter what. But I always desire the best for him, which is a life following Jesus. My friends, you were loved by God the Father. He wants the very best for you. He wants to protect you with his ark of salvation through the cross. He wants the world to know him. But we must better understand and clearly proclaim that God is a father, a God of both love and justice. And he is in the business of rescuing the lost and the sinner with his love. This past month, I was in Nevada, and uh, we saw about 65 people make decisions to follow Jesus. We did street ministry. We had a, a big kind of festival in this small town in Nevada. And one day when we were doing street ministry, we met this lady who was engaged in witchcraft, essentially. And she was haunted by demonic spirits. And we shared God's love with her, the gospel, and she turned from living life her own way to coming to to living God's God's way. And she had these, these crystals around her neck and on her fingers, all these rings. They thought that they... Uh, would protect her from these demonic spirits. But in the end, they, you know, they, they don't, you know, bring lasting protection. And when we got done praying, and, and she believed in, in Jesus as her Savior, that, that she is forgiven, 
And as she committed to living life for Jesus, she took off the rings and she took off that necklace, all those crystals. And she just had like this visible reaction, just like, almost like something came out of her. And she just felt this new peace and this freedom in that moment. And uh, I had two friends with me, and they invited her to church. And he's like, oh, Sunday can't come soon enough. And we saw her at the festival, and we saw her at church that Sunday, walking in freedom. That's what God's about, is rescuing people from sin, from evil in this world. And one day he's, he's going to, you, you may experience evil, you may experience suffering in this world, but it doesn't win. Jesus wins. And he's going to shelter us from all of that one day and bring justice to the world. He's a personal God. And I, I spoke about how, how we, when we offend other people, our, those relationships are broken. They need to be made right. That, that, that expression of, of sorrow, that forgiveness, that restitution. And so maybe there are some of you here today that you feel like, I, I, I need to make that, that choice. I need to get right with God today. I want you to know that that is God showing up right here today saying, hey, now's the time to, to be a part of my family, to be a son and daughter of the kingdom of God. And so if that's you today, then I, I just want you to pray with me. Again, it's not about saying the exact right, right, right words like it's magic, like abracadabra. No, it, God sees the heart. He sees if, if you're being real, if you really want to say you're sorry, if you really want that forgiveness, if you really want to trust him with everything you are, with your life and your death, to say you're going to follow him, he hears that, and he forgives, and he welcomes you in. And that relationship with Jesus begins today. You know that you, if you were to die today, that you'd be in heaven with him, but you have an advocate who's in heaven, and you have his spirit that's with you, helping you to overcome this world. And so that's you. I just want to just guide you in a prayer today. Just express this um, from the heart to God, okay? Let's bow our heads. And so just as I say this, just repeat this back to God. Jesus, I'm sorry that I've offended you. I'm sorry for every sin that I've committed against you. Will you forgive me for everything I've done? I believe that you died on the cross for me. That you took the death that I deserved. And I believe that you rose again in victory over my sin and death. Would you come into my life and help me to live for you? I pray that you just would take me to heaven one day. I put my faith and trust in you. Amen. Now, with your, with your eyes closed, I just, I just want to ask, if you prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand just so I know who to pray for today? Okay. I see you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And I would love to talk with you. Uh, just to give you some guidance on how you can continue to follow Jesus. And today is a defining moment. It says the, in, in the Bible that the angels rejoice for just one person that turns to Jesus because that's another one that Jesus rescued from the jaws of death and from the gates of hell. 
And so they're celebrating because Satan lost the battle over your life. <laughs> and so just some quick uh, steps. I just encourage you to either talk to me or Pastor Cabot or um, someone else here at the church that you feel comfortable with. If you're watching online, I encourage you just to message the church. If you made that decision to follow Jesus and to experience his forgiveness and to live for him, uh, we just want to uh, encourage you in your walk as you follow Jesus. And so we'd love to hear from you. And so just some ways that we encourage people to uh, continue their walk in following Jesus from here is come here. Uh, church isn't about this building. We're, I know we're building a, another great building in order to reach more people, but it's about this family. It's about loving one another. It's about encouraging one another and holding each other accountable and helping one another live for the Lord. So I encourage you to be here and let's worship and thank God together for who you to read his word. And it's a great way to learn, but I encourage you to do that. But I also encourage um, throughout history, but just talk to God like you would a friend. You know, what's going good? What's going bad in your life? Thanking him for what he's doing in your life. Praising him for who he is. I just encourage you to talk with him. And then lastly, I encourage you just to tell someone about what's happened to you. And one of the, the beauty the beauties of, of, of believing in God is sharing his love with the world and seeing people come to know him for the first time. And so God wants you to be a part of that too. And just sharing your story. How have you come to know God? What's he doing in your life? Just share that testimony with others because there's certain people that you'll be able to reach a lot better than I can, really. And so I encourage you to share your story of how you've come to know Jesus. And then lastly, just love Love God, love people. Amen? Just keep at it. Let me pray for you one last time, all right? Oh, God, we just thank you for who you are, that you are a God who loves first, and that you sent your son Jesus to remove our guilt. As uh, you, you talk about how you deal with guilt, when you, you appeared before Moses, that you are compassionate and gracious and that you're slow to anger, but that you will punish people for the guilt of their sins. And thank you for Jesus that you have dealt with our guilt, that we can know you, that we can know that we are yours, and that we have you in our lives to overcome this world. And so thank you for the declaration of who you are, and I pray that you just would deepen our understanding of you, that every single person in this room would just have an encounter with, with who you are, the very character, the very nature of God, and be encouraged today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done and continue to do. And thank you for being a God who is just inviting the world to knowing you and to be saved. And so I pray that you would use us in that way. Amen.